get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein back with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I was uh, discussing a couple of programmatic issues with my very trusty assistant, who is, in fact, a student, uh, an advanced undergraduate student who is considering a career in archaeology and uh, has a tremendous amount of potential in the field. And I asked her, what exactly are the types of questions that, that you would like to know? That really interests you about where the where the profession is going, because we have touched upon a number of issues that are relevant to the evolution of this profession at a, at a very critical time, when um, the direction of the profession is moving increasingly towards a more utilitarian approach, one in which um, the future of the profession will be powered essentially by finances and monies coming from the private sector, from government sectors, and we are essentially um, seeing that the relative proportion of archaeology uh, conducted by research institutions, universities, and uh, foundations is essentially changing completely from being dominated by those uh, venerable institutions as it was certainly through the uh, early 80s uh, to a point where it's all becoming now part of a preservation ethic and, and part of uh, heritage management. And, and so what we're seeing is these two trends that are, are really, really going to alter the face of this profession. And we've touched on it in certain shows, but I needed to get a picture of how students perceive these things. And, and when we started doing surveys, and the Society for American Archaeology will be doing a show uh, with them in a few weeks, but when the Society of uh, American Archaeology first paid close attention to this shifting balance, they ran a survey that was published in the late 1990s. I was involved in that, 
And I think we had come to the realization, or at least the society, which is, is again, the right, the right arm, if you will, of, of American archaeology and, and certainly the mouthpiece of uh, the majority of archaeologists who work in North America. Uh, they had realized, of course, by that point that, that this balance was shifting and that um, academic institutions were no longer the bulwark of uh, where archaeology was going. They uh, were still obviously training our people, but that actual archaeology was being done in the private sector and in the government sector. And um, this, this, this became a, a clear trend. And yet, when they did surveys of students and when they did surveys of professionals, uh, especially students, because students were uh, still in training mode, and of course the training mode is in the universities, uh, the students still overwhelmingly felt that uh, their career path was going to take them into the academy. And uh, when it was brought to their attention, I think, through the survey and, and, and through the evolving demographics of, what, of, of archaeology, if you want to call it that, that this was simply an impossibility. It wasn't going to happen. Um, the students are really, because they're young and, and because uh, they have ambition, and that's a wonderful thing, they still felt that their future was in the academy. And uh, I think that at this point in time, here we are about 15 years down the road, uh, slowly but surely, I think the uh, possibilities of the applied field are starting to appeal more and more to students. We're now maybe one generation of students away from the ones that could aspire and ha to, to academic careers and actually have a reasonable chance of going there. And now, of course, that's changing. And one of the reasons that that's changing, I think, is because um, students are, while they're still going into archaeology, they are demanding skills that will bring them into the 21st century archaeological marketplace. And in doing that, as the paradigm shifts and as uh, the focus of what we do changes from pure scientific excavation, say, in one or two places. Uh, we used to have a situation like that many, many years ago when an archaeologist would embark upon a career path and would essentially spend much of his career, if not all of it, working in one, two, maybe three places in the world. And that was a research area that was sort of carved out by that profession. There was, of course, a lot of politics involved in that. But nevertheless, a lot of professionals, who most of whom are now reaching retirement or already retired, that was their career path and that is what they did and that is how they perpetuated and uh, um, continued to function in the profession and they taught their students in the only way that they could and that was specifically to uh, pick out your area, find your uh, love, if you will, methodologically and go do it and that of course doesn't work anymore. And uh, the gap that we have between training and application has grown much wider because in large part, uh, when you get a position in a major school, you're not going to leave it. And you are certainly going to teach what you know. And what you know is how you were trained and uh, over and over and over. That's a recurrent theme. And again, we're getting to a point right now where we have to start uh, developing teachers and pedagogy that is acclimated to a changing world in which archaeology becomes um, sort of part of a compliance process, has a, a profound appreciation of preservation ethic, and certainly moves us in directions that we had not been grounded at, into when um, 
uh, people of my generation um, were in graduate school. So that's one of the issues that that we're going to find out about that that we're going to explore. And I think that that the the consciousness of students is finally catching up with the reality. And they are asking and they're questioning and they want to know how they get the appropriate education um, to move into this world of archaeology because, in fact, our world is expanding. Archaeology is expanding. It's just being done a little bit differently. And um, these are, are some of the uh, background issues that I want to discuss with you. Uh, what, what will the future of archaeology look like? Well, uh, quite frankly, stripping away all else, it will be more business-oriented. There will be a business model that certainly will vary in terms of uh, where it's being practiced, how it's being practiced. I think that we can safely say, based on um, where we are here in North America, North America, I would say, is sort of the ultimate expression of the business-oriented model. Um, you have only to look around at, at, at how strong the, uh, let's call it, the, the, the capitalist perspective is here in the United States. And it is private sector, and it is private sector-driven. And uh, I don't think that's going to change. I am hopeful that um, that government oversight and, and the regulatory environment will continue to provide guidelines for undertaking this type of work. Uh, it has worked so far, I think, in large measure. I mean, there's a lot of twi- twists and tweaks along the way. But nevertheless, I think that very productive archaeology is being done um, in the United States and in in North America, generally in Canada, certainly where there's a little more federal uh, oversight and actually federal practice of archaeology and uh, to uh, a a slightly lesser degree in in Mexico, which has uh, a whole bunch of other problems associated with that. And we will be talking about that in the next uh, couple of weeks. We're going to have a guest from from, uh, Mexico to discuss the status and state of um, Mesoamerican archaeology and specifically archaeology as being practiced in the contemporary geopolitical climate in Mexico. But but certainly in this part of the world – it, it, it's basically private sector driven. In Europe and in many parts of the developing world, that's a little different. There are certainly, well, Europe is uh, more welfare state oriented and has uh, essentially a uh, series of uh, its, its governmental sectors are much more powerful. There is a, a lot more regulation in a way, and uh, there are also government lands. And uh, certainly because of the development uh, climate being so so crowded, if you will, in Europe, um, there is uh, certainly, I would say, uh, almost unqualifiedly that there is much more sensitivity to archaeology over there. Uh, methodological advances are at the forefront of what's going on, remote sensing, um, probing, sub, uh, minimizing, again, minimizing subsurface exploration as it has to be minimized because it's so crowded and, and you really are going to have to develop some kind of an expertise to deal in environments in which the subsurface is just so loaded with utilities and, uh, let's say, encumbrances to actually do open archaeology. But there's a very, very clear sensitivity to that. The English heritage system is certainly very, very capable and and very well developed in terms of monitoring how the archaeology is done. And I I, I think that the future for doing that type of archaeology is enormous. And some of the programs 
programs that we have featured, um, specifically the Richard III program that we had uh, a few weeks ago, is certainly all powered by discoveries associated with developmental interests. And getting back to the topic, I think that in the European system, which I personally think is a wonderful system, um, there is there are budgets that are still regulated by the government. There are compliance guidelines that are very strongly enforced. This entire private property, public property uh, dichotomy is not as strenuously expressed as it is in this country, and I think that's for the better. On the other hand, we are now seeing a change in that paradigm as well. What with the economic crises that are being um, foisted upon basically some of the richest archaeological areas in Europe and certainly the most important in Western civilization, Greece, Spain, Italy, those countries will no longer be able to adjust, I don't think, to, to, to persist in the paradigm in which government has such a strong hand because those budgets are getting cut. Um, and austerity seems to be the watchword in Europe. It's created a tremendous amount of imbalance, and I think archaeology will suffer to some degree. I think those massive preservation projects that you've seen in Rome and Athens and in places like Madrid and Barcelona, those programs are going to either have to be refinanced possibly by um, private funding coming in either from within Europe or, or other parts of the world. And I think that paradigm is also going to suffer a little bit. And that's very unfortunate um, because I think that ultimately the European model is the one that we should probably strive for when you have that appropriate balance between private and public sector. And um, I think, as I said before, and I've indicated before, um, private sector is just, eh, I would say, just a tad too powerful here in the United States. Um, they drive everything, and that's okay. I think that uh, there is uh, th that paradigm is going to sh uh, change a little more in ways that I think we'll all find more satisfactory because I think we're going to be involving the um, the public much more. And I think the public basically is very thirsty for archaeology, and it, it it sees it sees archaeology as as, as potentially will see archaeology as a a very positive byproduct of most developmental interests. And I think that we are seeing a change in the mentality um, of developers at this point. They're starting to see that preservation is here to stay and they might as well utilize it in a favorable light so that public programs are now being affixed to uh, most uh, compliance projects uh, such that um, you're not just going to be, the regulators are no longer just going to be satisfied with uh, a report that documents exactly what occurred in the area of impact, but that there should be some kind of outreach. That's not uh, exclusively the uh, purview of the um, regulator, but certainly they can recommend it. And I think it's one of the responsibilities of the archaeological community to convey to developing development interests that is to, it is to their, to their benefit to provide public outreach. That's a tough one to crack. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little greater detail after these messages.
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we are discussing the changing face of archaeology and the increasing role that public, uh, private sector plays in the performance and the funding of archaeological work. And, and I think one of the problems that we have to get over in, in this discussion is the mindset, and, and, and in, set, in a sense, the calcified mindset or the frozen mindset that both archaeological, the archaeological community and corporate, uh, corporate America and international corporate perspectives all over the world have. I mean, this image that they have of one another. Um, certainly, if one has been involved in archaeology for as long as I have, you sort of get the sense that in many ways, uh, traditional archaeology works outside in a, in a vacuum. It, it works in, 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 in such a way as to essentially uh, say, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get money from a scientific foundation and I'm going to do my research and that will be what I do. I have it funneled through the university and, and, and the work gets done. That's not going on anymore. And as in many universities, and, and, and I have to say that uh, I will follow uh, this mentality to some degree, 
um, there is suspicion of corporate America. There's suspicion of, of private sector and for good measure and for good reason in many cases. But I think that since the 1970s that that mentality has certainly changed a lot. And um, we are seeing that there is a little bit of a convergence between regulation and the need for development and the emergence of, of the preservation ethic is certainly something that is very important in this regard. And um, we are seeing somewhat of a coming together, and it is a good thing. I, I think still, however, there's a lot of suspicion of, of corporations. And uh, what we have to do is we have to essentially show corporations that um, that what they're doing when they when they they uh, reluctantly conform to the need to accommodate the preservation ethic, if you will, by doing these excavations, is to show them where the where the benefits are. And the first thing one has to do is to change the mentality and the mindset that we are not antagonistic, but we are mutually reinforcing. And the way that's best done, I think, is is in the area of public relations. Um, ever since I've started working in, in the private sector, and that goes back for a really long time, we've been trying to convince companies that the way to go here is to show the public that heritage um, and, and the promotion of heritage and preservation and identities is something that private sector can hold up and raise its head up high as being a champion of doing that. Now, do they do that willingly? Well, clearly not. I mean, they would rather go ahead and um, get their licenses and permits without going through this program, but that's not happening because there are conscientious people out there and there is an, an, an ethic of doing the right thing in, in many quarters in this country and all over the world that maintains that you should be doing these things. And I think part of the problem, and the gap is so big, um, is because they're not used to it and it's still not ingrained in the system so that we're still getting situations where the archaeologist is sort of last on the regulatory ladder, the last one hired um, and, and, and the first one dismissed when, when they're going through the compliance process. And I noticed this and how glaring this problem was when um, I was looking at the commercials uh, in the wake of the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. After um, these folks, the BP had been sort of soundly flogged, if you will, um, perhaps not as much as some people wanted, but they certainly, uh, they certainly were in a way uh, taken out to the woodshed. But one of the things that they tried to do, and, and, and public relations do this, is to put the best possible spin on the situation so that when they were fined uh, a relatively significant amount of money to go clean this mess up, um, what they did in terms of their public relations was to put on their own employees on the TV and on the radio to say essentially – Look at our responsibility. Yes, we polluted the area. Yes, we polluted the Gulf, but we're working very hard to clean it up. Now, uh, I'm not sure who designs these PR operations, but the last, the, 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 the worst case scenario here is for you to actually get your own employees to come in and attest to the fact that you're doing the right thing. What exactly would you expect them to do? 
That's not the way to go about it. And we've had some discussions with uh, a number of members of the oil and gas industry and said, look, you're doing a lot of financing for archaeology. You're underwriting a huge percentage of the archaeology that's being done in this country. And why don't you get archaeologists out there to explain what they do, to essentially um, acknowledge the fact that your operation has financed archaeological data recoveries. They have financed, in some cases, the building of museums and exhibits and traveling uh, archaeological exhibits. They've also underwritten museum grants, and they've done a lot of these things that are actually in the public interest. And yet you still have a reluctant mentality on the part of private sector to say, yeah, but that's not our mission and we just want to champion our mission. Well, the, the the negative side of all of that is that pollution is uh, something that is very, very critical. And the perception that the industry is uh, not doing enough to contain itself and doesn't have enough oversight could easily, I don't say, well, not easily, but certainly could be positively um, re denied, if you will, or reassessed. Um, by dint of the fact that they are financing these things. Now, they're not going down without a fight. There's no question about that. But if you spin it in a positive light, and I think it's important to do that, then you come away with a picture of saying, okay, you know, we are strange bedfellows. We are in the same boat. We have to cooperate. And there is a positive win-win uh, situation, if you will, that uh, can be achieved by bringing these uh, countervailing interests together. They have to work together. They do work together. Uh, we've been doing this for a long enough time, so we know exactly how the process works. It's not easy. It's sometimes painful, but it's certainly not without precedent. And we know how to do these things. So I think that in the domain of public relations, um, this type of cooperation has to be encouraged. Now, the other part of this, and, and this is where we're getting resistance um, from a lot of our training institutions, is this element, public relations, uh, some, kind of a some kind of business savvy, uh, some type of accelerated methodological reinforcement showing that, that method is really becoming increasingly more, more significant in archaeology as we have to recover more and more information in less and less time. Those types of courses and programs have to be taught in the universities. For the longest time, it was assumed that the traditional ways of teaching method and theory in archaeological higher education uh, were essentially stagnant. I mean, uh, yes, there were developments in theoretical modeling. There's no question about that. One of the great periods of doing that was in the late 1970s and early 1980s, the post-processual movement, um, subsequent uh, process, and then post-processual process, which we've talked about in other programs. But now I think we have to get more involved with method. We have to understand that archaeology is becoming, and I hate to say, say it this way because it sounds simplistic, it's a lot more about doing and just a little bit less about formulation and theoretical constructs. I mean, there's very clearly, there's, uh, I'm not saying let's do away with theory. We have to keep it because that's how we train our minds to, to think in a progressive fashion. But the fact of the matter is, 
The fact of the matter is that application, application, and application is what's going to run archaeological employment for the next, uh, for, for the foreseeable future. And in terms of pedagogy and teaching, people who know these methodologies and who are familiar with, uh, with working in applied situations, these are the folks that need to be teaching. When this present generation retires, we have to have people in the classroom who know how to do applied archaeology. Otherwise, we are teaching in a dinosaur fashion. We're teaching people to do uh, skills and, and, and uh, uh, let, let's say, uh, approaches that are not really as relevant as they were when we were all about thinking and less about doing, because now it's going to be very much about doing. And that will branch out into different elements of the contemporary world, communication, marketing, a lot of in the, in the more uh, research-oriented venues, um, statistical methods, remote sensing technologies, uh, forensics. Uh, the connection between archaeology and forensics has been greatly enhanced uh, in the past few years. And I think a lot of archaeologists are now starting to say, well, you know what, the methods that we have used in archaeology forever can be applied to contemporary crime scenes. And this is a very positive development. It is ultimately about getting jobs. And we cannot, as archaeologists, close ourselves up and say, well, we are not vocational institutions. We're not teaching people to get jobs. We're teaching them to think. Well, of course you're teaching them to think. But you have to think at some point. You have to think in a positive and applied sense because people ultimately have to work. And unless uh, you were born with the silver spoon in your mouth, you can't make a living in archaeology unless you can apply it in the contemporary world. And as, I'm say as I've been saying for a long time, that world is expanding. The opportunities are expanding. Um, traditional archaeology, as I said before, where you'd go out and work on your site for uh, the majority of, of your career, that's, that's not happening anymore. And, and it's, it's foolhardy for, for anyone to think that it is going to go on. So I, I think that uh, we are getting the message, we're getting it slowly, but we have to start formulating positive paradigms of how this world is running. And we have to, I think, uh, stop sitting on the sidelines and say, um, and, and say, well, you know, we will do applied archaeology until that magic uh, theoretical job in the in the uh, major university is going to open up because it's not going to and ultimately we have to teach future generations that these are issues so what does that mean in terms of ethics and morality and 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 how we do our work how do we sacrifice the resource and the interests of 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 development are we ultimately beholden to the client which would be in some cases let's use the north american example because it's so blatant as i indicated before are we beholden to corporate interests do we ignore the significance of the resource i don't think so and i think that we have to just explore new paradigms and new vistas in order to get both sides of this equation which as i said i'm seeing it come together but we we have to make a stronger effort to make it merge more smoothly and we will be talking about that interface between the client and the resource when we get back after these words
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we are talking about changing the paradigm and the models of archaeology, uh, archaeological training, archaeological application to a world in which um, there is increasingly a question of funding and a question of who does what and why do we have to do archaeology. And, of course, it's overwhelmed by the preservation ethic and heritage management and the development and design of programs uh, for all for nations all over the world and especially in the developing world in which monuments are becoming a major portion for example of the uh, tourism industry well this is what we have to teach in our schools we have to teach in our university heritage management tourism what it means what the preservation of monuments is all about how we develop uh, cultural resource management plans that allow planners in third world and developing nature to develop their heritages in the sense that it will ultimately benefit their economies. And we don't teach that. We simply don't teach it. We teach about ancient civilizations. We talk about the glory of ancient Egypt. But do we talk about the perpetuation and the survival of contemporary Egypt, which is based largely on a tourist economy? We don't talk about it. And one of the reasons we don't talk about it is that we don't have a professional cadre of people that actually is equipped to do this sort of thing. We have to teach 
these programs, preservation programs, heritage management programs, ecotourism, we have to teach that in our universities. And if we don't do that, we are essentially shooting ourselves in the foot because we're not learning the lessons of applied archaeology and why it is a world that is here to stay. And if we can't if we can't promote that kind of world, then we're really not advancing the interests of what we do. So I think that's critical. I think in the developing world, um, heritage management will become an increasingly more significant part of how archaeology is done. Um, it's also a major component of what we do in North America. Um, the other thing, of course, is uh, one, one of the... Uh, and, and, and this is this is a, a, of great interest to I think people who who have been doing pure science for a long time, and, and I'm one of those people as well. Um, is is this entire question of interdisciplinary research in archaeology one of the things that um, many of you may not know, who, if you're not in the professional community, is uh, certainly over the past 40 years, um, interdisciplinary archaeology has become really a big deal. And that is uh, not only studying the finds and the relics, but also uh, reconstructing the environments in which people lived. And one of the reasons that emerged in archaeology is because some, at some point, as, as some of the great archaeological theorists had, had uh, been formulating their, their ideas in the mid-20th century, they uh, started to shift the focus of archaeology from the uh, archaeology of elite structures, for example, art history, uh, architecture, from that to understanding how people lived. How did the, the, greater, the greater unwashed, if you will, the, the great unwashed, how did these people live? How, uh, how were social and economic networks functioning in early cities? How did, these, how did commerce work? And, and there was a strong impetus to understand that. And one of the uh, backbones of that kind of research is to understand how environments change. Because as environments change, people made adjustments, changes in climate. Climate. And as a result of that, archaeology was able to integrate a lot of hard science into uh, what are called these interdisciplinary, multidi multidisciplinary um, assessments of, of what happens in archaeological sites. How did the vegetation change? How did the climate change? That's, of course, a really major issue. And how did the uh, distribution of particular settlements in some of the great cultures, and I'm talking about Mesoamerica, the Aztecs, the Incas, let's talk about the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, and uh, the Harappans in, in Pakistan, India, how did their geographic locations and how did their settlements change in response in response to a changing environments changing environments and b how did they make the adjustments did they uh, did they develop canals did they modify their uh, seasonal planting cycles and of course to do that and to get that kind of information we had to call upon the services services of people who actually did this stuff and so we would engage climatologists, geologists, uh, pollen and, and paleoethnobotanic experts, zoologists, all these people who uh, studied ancient bones, ancient plants, ancient climates, 
And the role of the archaeologist uh, sort of evolved from being a person who just um, excavated buildings or houses to a person who actually synthesized what that meant, who uh, sort of brought together all these forces of natural change and cultural change and tried to formulate that and put this into a comprehensive model of uh, change through time. And again, this was when academic archaeology was really flourishing, and, and we're talking about the late 60s into the early mid-80s, and I think that was a wonderful back, backdrop to understanding where we are going in our society in the future, because uh, an understanding clearly of climatic change is so critical right now in the days of the alert to global warming. What does it mean? Well, archaeologists have so much to give us and so much information to provide when we discuss these types of issues. For example, we can look at past cycles, irrespective of the scale. We can talk about thousands of years, hundred years, decades, years in particular, by reconstructing elements of ancient climate, and we get it in the marine isotope records, we get it through the vegetation people by looking at changing um, correspondences between treed environments and herbaceous environments, how the grasslands and, and uh, the relative proportion of an area with respect to its, its grassland and and tree distributions, how those changed in, in incredible detail. And that too gets tied into small changes to, and to monumental changes in climate. And these are, of course, a prospectus for understanding what is going to happen in the future so that we're able to have a roadmap because we see what happened in the past and we have studied it for many, many years. And one of the things that we have to do is to bring those skills to bear to the future. And part of the problem here again is, is what we were discussing before is we have to make that message known because people will not hire you just because you say you can do things. You have to demonstrate that you can do things. And so climatologists have a tremendous, paleoclimatologists who study ancient climates have a tremendous amount of information to uh, impart to people who are studying global warming. Now, are we doing that? Well, not really, not very well, because um, the uh, the interdisciplinary element of it works has has worked reasonably well when you're putting together a fixed project that's looking at the past. But to project that information to the future, which is really where we need to go with all of this, uh, we have to have people who do know something about public relations and who are able to make this jump into, again, an applied scenario. I think the National Science Foundation is doing a reasonably good job at trying to bridge these things. They are trying to uh, develop, they're trying to fund projects archaeologically that have implications for the future and for addressing issues like global warming, which will simply not wait for uh, archaeologists to take their time and address it. It has to be done relatively fast, and that's another thing. Um, we have to do all of our work on a much quicker scale. Are we going to sacrifice thoroughness? Well, I think that may be a problem. I think that may be an issue. Uh, I do know that in the world of applied archaeology, you don't have 20 years to dig a site. You may have one. 
And I was looking at some interesting assessments of that um, because the fact of the matter is that if you spend 20 years doing it a site versus one year uh, looking at a site, you're going to get so much more information over the 20-year hole. But the question becomes, what is the point of diminishing returns? Let's say you work a site for three years and you get a real good handle on that site and its environmental and demographic implications for reconstructing those types of scenarios, you may have 80% of your data yield in three years, whereas in maybe 20 years, you'll get to 90%. Are we getting to a point of diminishing returns? I think that's true. And I think that what we have to do now in archaeology is to develop our efficiency to the point where we can do a site, and we could do a site fast and quickly and get, if not maximum yield or an ultimate explanation of, of uh, the significance of the site, to get pretty darn close to those limits by uh, improving, improving our methodology, by getting more efficient, by, in a sense, getting the maximum we can get out of non-invasive non-invasive archaeology using remote sensing tools, LIDAR mapping, um, a variety of different new techniques, magnetostratigraphy, those types of things that will uh, give us uh, clear windows into uh, how to economize and maximize the efficiency of what we're doing uh, archaeologically. So I think that by doing this, um, we are addressing a lot of very, very relevant questions that uh, extend from just um, developing partnerships between uh, corporate America and, and institutions to our very survival because we know – Pretty much we know. I mean, I, I would say that, that, that people who are denying global warming, I think, are living in a bubble. But I think we know that there's an urgency here. And I think urgency is what archaeologists have to – is a concept that archaeologists are going to have to come to grips with. Urgency, quickness, efficiency, and maximizing your yield over time without uh, compromising – um, absolutely everything, but but learning what the limitations are on your data recovery and trying to optimize it. And so um, on that note, I think we're going to another break, and uh, we'll be back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, Tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSCU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is our final segment on this program. It kind of flew by, and, and, and I go back to what my very capable assistant uh, brought up and when she was drafting an outline for this program, and I, I really sort of squarely laid it, laid it in front of her. I just really want to know what students want to hear, and I have to say that I am gratified that students are starting to finally understand that the application of archaeology is probably the most important single element of the profession at this point in time. We have to understand that without applying the profession and without applying the discipline to issues in the modern world, we're not going to be any more than a sort of a, a hobby for uh, antiquarians okay, bring us back to the uh, late 19th century when 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 just gentlemen and and people of means were doing this uh, right now we're in a, a reasonably good situation in terms of this profession but the pedagogy has to catch up and it's not doing that and i think that is one of the biggest problems that we're facing we had embarked in the society of american archaeology on a project uh, several projects years ago to essentially change the way in which archaeological education was being approached in our institutions of higher learning. Have we made progress? Yes, I think we have. We've, we've made a lot of progress, and, and uh, you can't deny it. But the fact of the matter is that, we st- that our faculties are still not populated by people who have experience in real-world archaeology and whose experience in the applied venues are such that they can literally uh, teach teach students how to transition and segue, if you will, from an academic training into uh, employment in the non-academic community. And I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that if we don't do that, we will have no reason to teach this stuff anymore because we have to teach it towards an applied end. And uh, we are making progress. I'm not, go- I'm not going to deny that. And, and, uh, I, I, I just think that we have to start populating the universities with, uh, with professors and uh, professionals who have experience in the real world. 
And until that happens, I think we're still going to be debating these issues. On, on the other hand, uh, on the positive note, I do see, I do see positive developments in uh, bringing together the community of archaeologists and the communities of corporations and regulators. We have to have all three aspects of this preservation cycle uh, involved here. Um, regulators, uh, environmental segments of companies, and of course the practitioners of our profession, we have to get them all on the same page. And that is working, I believe. I think it's. I, I, I think, in, to to a lot, a large degree, the the level of mistrust, if not, if it's not completely dying off, I think it is certainly um, getting to a point where we're starting to go hand in hand, and we're starting to at least realize what the priorities of each segment of the compliance process is. And 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 if I may say, I think uh, I think there is. Uh, there are people on the fringes who basically castigate any archaeologists who work in conjunction with corporate endeavors. We're still seeing that. It, it, it's redolent of, of previous periods of, of discontent and protest in the country and, uh, and, and through, through time. But anybody with a clear mind, as far as I'm concerned, is going to see that there has to be a wedding and a bridging between these various uh, components of of the economy, really, that have to get together and uh, negotiate and make their presence known and understand that the future of this profession and the future of development generally uh, benefits from the mutual contributions that each party brings to the table. And I think as archaeologists, I think, our major challenge is to really wake up to the reality of applied archaeology. There's, there, there, there can be no separation of applied archaeology and anything else anymore because it's just such an overwhelming um, component of what we do. And by the same token, I think we are seeing an increased environmental sensitivity on the part of developers and um, uh, corporate interests. Uh, there's a whole other issue that we have talked about on previous shows, and that is doing archaeology in uh, compromised situations. We've talked about doing archaeology in war. We're talking about the increasing role about of forensics in um, and 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 the lessons actually that archaeologists can bring to bear um, in this sort of venue because. Um, we have been excavating bodies forever, and our techniques are amongst the best in the world, um, and we are called upon increasingly. I mean, one of my colleagues, Richard Gould, has made a major, major contribution in um, establishing a connection between forensics and archaeology on the ground to contemporary disasters. For example, this <coughs> Richard has uh, almost single-handedly uh, bridged the tragic events of 9-11 and undertook a small excavation at the site of the uh, New York City World Trade Center and showed uh, first responders and uh, investigators of the fire department, police department, how archaeological recovery methods are probably uh, a state-of-the-art compared to all others because we know that we're destroying evidence every time we do it, 
And part of our methodology is to be extremely careful and to document everything before it comes out of the ground. And uh, Richard was able to develop a protocol for um, recovering critical piece of information at the World Trade Center to, uh, to, to the satisfaction and to the surprise of uh, first responders and, and members of the police and fire departments who are trying to sequence these events because of archaeological techniques. And I think, uh, I think the, the, the future is really, really quite bright. I think all of us have to make some compromises. We have to understand that the world is, uh, contains finite resources and that in order to maximize and, and to enjoy our planet, we have to be very careful in what we do and we have to understand uh, how sensitive environments are and archaeologists have a lot to offer in that. And we have to understand that changing demographics are studied by archaeologists in very productive ways, in part because of the theories that were developed in the theoretical wave of archaeology in the mid-60s and early 70s. And we understand how populations move around, and we understand the impacts of catastrophes and disasters and more subtle changes, for example, changes in cropping patterns, changes in lower-level climate, um, lower cycle. Uh, lower frequency changes in climate, how we make those adjustments to to that economically and, and certainly in terms of economic adaptation. We make these changes because we understand how they were done in the past. And if we can understand how they were done in the past, we can certainly project how they're going to be done in the future. So again, I, I think uh, I want to end this thing on a very positive note, and I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And I would just uh, argue that um, uh, close cooperation between development interests and archaeologists is really going to be a key to everybody's success going forward. And on that note, I would like to sign off and say that we will see you next time. And good night and have a pleasant one. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.